It's Monday, September 20th, and you've got Oz in your ears. Oh, there's that music. I'm awake. I'm alive. <laughs> I'm Peter Bergman, your host, my co-host, David Osmond, Radio Free Oz at the RadioFreeOz.com. Yeah. Grown up to full size. Now, oh, yeah. Pete. You're just, yeah, just like the Pillsbury boy. <laughs> well, I tell you, David, it's been an amazing time since we got together in this studio the last time to make this happen. We are now, Radio Free Oz, on the front page of the Los Angeles Free Press. The Freep. The Freep, their website. Now, you know, the Freep is, um, Cotemporaneous with the original Oz back right. in 1966, and uh, now we're we're working with them, and and they wanted us to be on their page and and work with them, and we got the Oz team together, Scott Wilde and Phil Fountain, and everybody got together, and within a couple of days, we have this this wonderful RSS feed right up there with our logo, the every this Bergman's blog. You go right to our site, you go to the Daily Show. It's really hot. That is really cool, and it's a great association. Too, I got to say that uh, um, the free press not only was co-contiguous or whatever with us, but uh, it was Los Angeles. It was the feeder of of all the information that uh, Los Angeles needed when it started. Art Conkin was the founder. Yeah, uh, it started in Pasadena originally. It was up in, in nineteen sixty four. Yeah, sixty four. Yeah, and he is still posting. Yep. I mean, our, yep. Art's still alive and well, just like ourselves. And it's, I've it's, got it, a, I've got a couple of copies of the of the paper complete, you know, that I saved from like 1967 well, that are just treasures because they're filled full of, you know, everything that we've forgotten about how great 1967 was. Well, you know how Proctor came to the Firesign Theaters. He said, you know, Peter, I sat down on your face. And Proctor <laughs> likes. Well, yeah. what are you talking about? He said, well, I, I I sat down on a bench on the Sunset Strip and there was a mm. free press under me. I pick it up and there's you um, interviewing what looks this very scruffy so-called Marine. I don't know if he was a Marine. <laughs> it was all part of my reportage of the Sunset Strip riots, okay? You know, for which I then did that um, doc- documentary, uh, uh, A Tale of Two Eves, which is my Armstrong Award, my That's own right. radio award. And that was your, that was, uh, that was, you, was it your first radio documentary? My first no. radio, yes, it no. was my and first that, radio that documentary. And that precipitated all the documentaries we did after Indian documentaries yeah. and all of that, yes. And so there I was in the free press. So it really was central to what was going on. And here we are back again. It's, it's terrific. And it's, it's good also company. the way it was built, the way working with the guys and having it built on, on Scott's demo site in front of us as we did this multi-Skype, it was a whole new publishing. I mean, I come from the, you know, I'm old school, right? Dad, you know, I, I, I come from a newspaper family where the, the photographers used to come over to the house at night with their slouchy old sport jackets and the caps and their, their, <laughs> their pockets stuffed with those big flash bulbs for their speed graphic four by fives. You know, it was right out of Ben Heck, you could smell the lead. Oh no, man, it's clean, clean, clean now. Now it's clean. Now it's clean. Well, it's still, it's still journalism. It yes, just it is. isn't the city room anymore. It's no, no. Sort of the city room is in your head. Uh, the city room has gone to hecked, so to speak. Oh my I goodness! Know. I know. Oh, Front page ben, pun. I been a you. bad pun. Of course, I know how small a state Delaware is but I never figure out how many small mines reside there. 
They've nominated a candidate to run for the Senate on the GOP ticket, don't tell Abe Lincoln, his casket RPMs are redlining already, who under any other circumstances would be labeled demented light and laughed off the stage. But this is the fall and soon winter of our discontent, and Christine O'Donnell makes a whole lot of sense to people who have very little of their own. Okay, she denies evolution and claims the big guy made the world in six 24-7s. No surprise. Her party tried to put a woman in the White House, one myocardial heartbeat away from the button, who claims to have seen fossils commingled with the feet of giant dinosaurs and little children, proving they frolicked together in the scriptures not too distant past. Okay, she thinks abstinence is a workable solution despite all the statistics and single mothers to the contrary. No biggie. Christine knows statistics are the foot soldiers of secular science who serve only the elite and their minions of smarter-than-thou intellectuals. Okay, she claims masturbation is sexual perversion despite millions of happy testimonials from those of us who beat off to a different drum. None of her wacko ways disqualify her from running for office. What they would do in a better and saner time would disqualify her in the minds of any voter who took the time to figure out that putting an ignorant, Bible-crazed, no disrespect to the Bible, it's the crazed part that's worrisome. Retro cheerleader in the Senate is reckless and stupid. Imagine making her one of the 100 votes that peoples the Supreme Court, funds the war on the not-me, giveth or taketh away the bread from the needy, and stands guard with our founding fathers at the sacred border between church and state. Should she ascend to the senior chamber, she might find bird brains of a feather if Rand Paul, rumored to be the love child of Ron Paul and Ayn Rand, and Sharon Angle surf home on this wave of fear and anger. Christine can join Jim Inhofe and hotly deny global warming, help what's left of John McCain finish that dang fence, and compliment a feast of choice tax cuts for the rich with an after-dinner Jim DeMint. Remember, little minds can achieve great things if great minds do little to stop them. Dave, this story is all the more serious because it is completely local for us. This is a Seattle story, and we're just a ferry trip away. You may have noticed that Molly Norris's comics are not in the Seattle Weekly anymore. wonder why. That's because there is no more Molly. The gifted artist is alive and well, thankfully, but on the insistence of top security specialists at the FBI, she is, as they put it, going ghost. Going ghost? Moving, changing her name, and essentially wiping away her identity. This is a very popular cartoonist. Yeah, yeah. She will no longer be publishing cartoons in the Weekly or in the City Arts Magazine, where she was a regular contributor. She is, in effect, being put into a witness protection program, except, as she notes, without the government picking up the tab. It's all because of the appalling fatwa issued against her this summer following her infamous Everybody Draw Muhammad Day cartoon. Norris hmm. views the situation uh, with her, uh, what, what you'd call her own, um, they say like, self-deprecating uh, sense of humor. Uh, and when, when FBI agents on a recent visit, right, uh, instructed her to always keep watch for anyone following her, she responded, well, at least it'll keep me from being so self-involved. It uh, was, she says, the first time the agents managed to smile. She likens the situation to cancer. It might basically be nothing. It might be urgent and serious. It might go away and never return, or it might pop up again when she least expects it. A fatwa, fatwa uh, for says, a cartoonist? Well, here's, well, I, I remember when that happened. Yeah, it, you know, draw... Damn serious. Know, yeah, well. Now, here's the problem. Yeah. Fatwas. You see, there is no central 
official Muslim church, no Vatican that can, after careful study uh, and immense pressure and the death of a few key old men, rescind some ridiculous anathema. These clerics, they're self-proclaimed. There's no central church. Anyone can be an imam. It just means a giver. You just People just respond. You say, I'm your cleric. They say, yeah. You call to prayer. They come. You're their cleric. That's how well, they are. No, that, that, that works in the evangelical area well, it, of the Christian church it's as also, well. It's part of their extraordinarily, really democratic and, you know, grassroots appeal, mm-hmm. right? These clerics just pop off, though, these death threats at will and hope their following will carry it, carry them out. That's how they did it against Rushdie. Didn't come from some special special, you know, place. It came from a couple of clerics who thought the man must die because he, he said something wrong about Muhammad, right? And so my question, Dave, is mm-hmm. where's the outcry? Now, I'm, I haven't gone and checked on this, but where's the outcry from the moderate Muslim, the everyday real sane Muslim community about this, right? Not only an outcry, but a genuine grassroots reaction uh, to those clerics, Yes, saying we we don't participate in this. We don't want to have anything to do with this, and we we throw our shoes at you or whatever it is that you do. Anything else we can pick up that's near our feet? Yeah. Uh, yes, and we will protect her. We are going to form a bodyguard for her, and she's going back to work. And if you want to come at her with your fatwas, you're going to have to come through us. That would be great. That'd be something. Yeah. Oh, can you imagine a, a, standing around this cartoonist, these these guys in in those wonderful checked headscarves with AK forty seven? No, 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 no. These are just everyday Muslims. Remember, the Muslim community in America has more college and advanced degrees. As a, as a group than anybody else in the country. Their median income is higher, and they're just it's just a fine group of everyday hardworking people, right? Except for these crazy, you know, these crazy clerics that come out with their fatwas. Well, it's too bad because The Weekly, which is a, a very good alternate newspaper and uh, long, uh, long been in Seattle, Paper as well as the uh, the the city, city paper, the city yeah. arts, which is a magazine, a, a um, you know glossy, yeah. that uh, uh, she's uh, she will be she will be missed. Not only will she be missed, but she won't even be there. This fascinating in-depth study was written for Newsweek's TheStreet.com by Lauren LaCapra. If you ask almost anyone in a position to know whether Lehman Brothers was too big to fail, the overwhelming response is something akin to. Of course. Lehman was definitely too big to fail, says Lawrence McDonald, a former vice president at the defunct investment bank. When asked whether the collapse of 10 mini Lehmans would have had the same effect, if smaller banks went down, it wouldn't have anywhere near the impact on the global markets. Michael Driscoll, a former senior managing director at Bear Stearns Trading Desk, notes that Lehman's enormous leverage ratio, in effect, made the bank 30 times bigger than itself. Lehman was in a very tenuous position, he says. It was just a matter of time before, in a bad situation, all that leverage was going to come back and bite it in the rear. Indeed, at $700 billion, Lehman's balance sheet was big and so was its failure, representing the largest bankruptcy in history. Yet it might be more accurate to say that Lehman Brothers was actually too opaque to fail, not too big. Part of the problem were regulatory deficiencies and accounting standards that helped Lehman obscure its true risk exposure and funding shortfalls. In April, SEC Chairwoman Mary Shapiro aptly described the conditions leading up to Lehman's failure when she pointed to the proliferation of complex financial products, including derivatives with illiquidity and other risk characteristics that were not fully transparent or understood. 
A big contributor to Lehman's demise was a lack of information available to interested parties, whether they be investors, counterparties, regulators, or top executives. They were all in the dark. No one seemed to know how much capital Lehman needed, how much exposure to toxic real estate assets it had, or how much time was left on the clock to figure it all out. I mean, we did a story on this a, a, a while ago, and the, and the bozos at Lehman's, those mumsers, the night before were all kind of like shaking each other's hands and other parts of the body saying, it's going to be okay, that window will open tomorrow morning at that bank and they can't say no. Well, they did. A key finding by bankruptcy examiner Anton Volukas showed that everyone from managers to regulators to auditors missed an accounting tactic Lehman had been heavily reliant upon to prop up its balance sheet in what he called a materially misleading manner. I think it's criminal. Materially misleading. Fraud, baby. Volukas uncovered a gimmick called Repo 105, in which loans are moved into off-balance sheet vehicles for a short period of time and booked as sales, i.e. at the end of like an accounting period, usually a quarter, you take all this stuff that ain't selling, you, you book it as a sale, you park it over with somebody else, and that shows as an asset. The minute you do your accounting, you buy it back. So it's pure fraud, and they couldn't even get it, they couldn't even get it through American law, so they ran it through their British counterpart because British law allows you to do it. A total scam. The practice is common in the financial services industry, but while the Fed, the Treasury, the SEC have been scrutinizing and stress-testing banks' books since the collapse of Bear Stearns in March 2008, none of them seemed to know about Repo 105 until it was brought to their attention by Volucas. The Street examined the off-balance sheet holdings of major financial firms last year ahead of a rule change by the FASB that required banks to move a heap of those assets back into the books. Wells Fargo, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley held $3.9 trillion worth of notional exposure to off-balance sheet assets as of March 31, 2009. Window dressing! Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac had trillions of dollars worth of off-balance sheet exposure, too. And these are federal or quasi-federal organizations, and they're playing the same fraud game. Orange jumpsuits for all of them. In July, the financial press was littered with reports about window-dressing tactics akin to Repo 105 after word surfaced that Bank of America had improperly considered up to $10.7 billion worth of items as assets rather than loans. What a convenient mistake. It's not to say that banks are being fraudulent in their accounting practices. That's what I am saying. They don't have to. The FASB's rules are apparently so full of holes that banks can drive a big heap of CDOs straight through them. McDonald, the former Lehman VP, says banks like Lehman and Citigroup, which had huge off-balance sheet exposures to SIVs, were impossible to analyze. No, not impossible to analyze. The will was not there, okay? Uh, remember, Bernie Madoff's daughter was married to one of the regulators. So, hey, go figure. 
Now, several things will help increase transparency going forward. Now, since the uh, banking bill. New requirements for derivatives clearing, long-awaited changes in accounting standards and capital requirements, as well as quarterly reports in the post-crisis era that are rife with detail. Yeah, this is all very well good, well and good, but the American public and our, our representatives have got to be on this every day. They've got to really care, or these bastards are going to pull the same tricks all over again. Just go take a whiff of Wall Street, and you'll know what I'm talking about. But just as banks are required to provide their retail customers with a simple explanation of terms and conditions, perhaps regulators ought to ensure that investors have a clear line of sight into what type of assets financial firms hold and the risk that comes along with them. After all, in the post-crisis environment, stakeholders and counterparties should be able to focus on whether a firm is worth doing business with, not how its size will affect its ability to fail. That's fine, as long as these stakeholders and counterparties are really interested in the risk. They get caught up in this whole Ponzi of, I'll give you 90 to 1, everybody else is a schmuck, you're on the inside. That's what we have to deal with. That's the counterculture that brings us down. Five, four, three, two, beep. Erpie iPad App presents Exorcism in Your Daily Life, registered trademark, Derivatives. Let's join Billy and his dad over in their typical Billville home breakfast nook, where Billy is explaining... Uh, you see, Dad, my philosophy teacher wants me to, to produce this music video about derivatives and, and Freud, and, and I need to go practice ultimate ring ball with Bruce. Well, Bobby, I'm not allowed to talk about Freud anymore. Really? Or, or ring ball. Gosh. But, but derivatives are something else. They sure are, Dad. Uh, what are they? It's easy, buddy. You see, derivatives are contracts whose value is determined by, well, by something else. That's very philosophical, Dad. I'm trying. You sure are, Dad. So, what's a contract? Well, Teddy, for that, we'll have to doodle dee dee doodle 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 do on down to see Big Bill Brown there at what's left of the First National Bingo Bank. Golly! doodle 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 well, hi, Mr. Brown. I'm here again. You sure are, buddy. What's it this time? Another question about the size of my fat bonus? I don't want to have to think about that ever again, sir. Mm -hmm. But but anyway, what's a derivatives contract, Mr. Brown? Oh, well, that's easy, son. It's a collateralized debt obligation, and that's a valuable product we bankers sell to hedge against risks. Do I have one, Mr. Brown? You won't even know what one is until you get an M. MBA, Bobby. Oh. You know, sometimes these entirely digital things we buy and sell here are called interest rate swaps, and, and they help to protect us against abrupt changes in interest rates. You mean like the 29% my mom pays on her Kmart card? There's nothing your mom can do about that, Bobby. Oh. I, I expect she'll have to lose her car. What about our food, Mr. Brown? Well, well, for that, Teddy, you better go see Farmer Jones down at the Chemical Corn Exchange Department. Doodly 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 do. Well, Bobby, you see, I grow onions, and onions are the only cash vegetable crop that you can grow, but you can't bet on. I, I, I can't. No, sir. And there's a fine U.S. federal law 
to protect you from doing that. Golly. What if <laughs> Goldman Sachs a crap could sell those insane Wall Street gamblers and money-mad banking moguls on a deal to bet on the size of my bulging onion crop? Oh, is that like a, a metaphor, Farmer Jones? Stop imagining things, Bobby, and listen. All right. There are a lot of people who only care about the stuff they can bet on. Oh, that's very futuristic. Yep, it sure is. Let's say you bet the bank I'll grow 390 tons of onions. Gosh, okay. W what'll that cost me, sir? 390 pink Monopoly dollars and eventually the whole international economy. Wow. Uh, even the euro? Well, that's sick. It sure is. Now, if you bet that I'm going to grow more tons than that, you go long. Oh, I really like to, Farmer Jones, but I'm only 13. I mean, place your bet, boy. Oh. Or you can go short and sell my onion contract to some other bozo. Oh, how can I sell it if I didn't buy it? Confusing, ain't it, Bubba? Yeah. And, and you know, that's the way they like it. Mm. But for the real poop, you need to Skype our most prominent futurologist, old Doc Infirmo, no. the famous exorcist yeah. down at the Homeland Infirmary Agency. doodle 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 Well, so, Doc, I, I don't know what a derivative is, and, and I'm confused about contracts and obligatory collateralized d d debts, and, and well, well, what do you predict will happen, Dr. Infermo? We're doomed. Golly, again? Derivatives, another exorcism in your daily life iPad app from Burpee. From Politico, Europeans may still like Barack Obama more than Americans do, but they're turning against him on Afghanistan. Are you listening, Barack? A survey released this week finds that 78% of residents across 11 European countries approve of the way the president handles foreign policy generally. That's a 5% point dip from last year, but it dwarves the 52% of Americans who feel the same way. So they like him a lot more than we do because we know him a lot better. 49% of Europeans like how Obama's handling both Afghanistan and Iran in a 9 percentage point drop from last year. Only about one quarter of Europeans feel optimistic that Afghanistan can be stabilized. A majority of Americans, albeit slim, still feel optimistic. Because they're afraid to be pessimistic. They don't want to look at all those snakes coming out of his head. Each of the EU countries surveyed has troops in Afghanistan, and a plurality said they want to see their country withdraw all of them. Haha, <laughs> the coalition of the willing. Meanwhile, a majority in the United States supported either maintaining or increasing troop levels. <sighs> the findings could indicate trouble ahead as Americans seek to shore up allied support. You guess so? Despite a relatively small and largely expected drop-off that naturally comes with the exigencies of governing, Obama's numbers stand in stark contrast to George W. Bush's. For the last three years of Bush's presidency, they hovered around 20%. <laughs> Four out of five Europeans thought he was such a schmendrick. Hey, all of you Ozaneers on Twitter. Uh, retweeting has its rewards, and we are going to give you an opportunity to win some cool stuff simply by helping us spread the word about Radio Free Oz on Twitter. If you aren't following us yet, go up to www.twitter.com slash oznetwork and follow the show. See you on the inside. 
Well, I got to make an apology out there. Oh, no. I just talked off the top of my head and made a, a, a stupid mistake. And uh, Kat Ishikawa up there in uh, in Canada, not too far away from his cat, wrote me and said, no, uh, Dinesh D'Souza and Francis Fukuyama, who actually wrote to the end of history, are not the same guy. You know, you're right. And, and he was right. And it was just something I said. But it took me to to uh, to uh, Dinesh D'Souza's website to find out who he really was. And this book, The Roots of Obama's Rage. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking this is an important text that this guy's book is. Here is what the inside flap of this book that please don't go out and buy. Here's what the infla- inside flap says. You will never see Obama the same way again. Could I have music, please? Thank you. He has been called many things. Is this dialogue or what? He has been called many things. A socialist, a radical fellow traveler, a Chicago machine politician, a prince of the civil rights movement, a virtual second coming of Christ, or even a covert Muslim. But as New York Times best-selling author Dinesh D'Souza points out in this shockingly revealing book, these labels merely slap our own preconceived notions on Barack Obama. Not, not Dinesh D'Souza's preconceived notions. Okay, the real Obama is still the book flap. Right, still flapping. Still flapping. Lips are still okay. flapping. The real Obama is a man shaped by experiences far different from those of most Americans most Americans. He is a much stranger, more determined, and exponentially more dangerous man than you'd ever imagine. He is not motivated by the civil rights struggles of African Americans in the 60s. Those battles leave him wholly untouched. He is not motivated by the socialist or Marxist propaganda that hypnotized a whole generation of woolly-minded academics oh, and condescending. Can, can you have the music, please? Uh, uh, those concepts leave him cold. Okay, here's the key paragraph. What really motivates Barack Obama is an inherited rage, an often masked but profound rage that comes from his African father, whom he didn't know, an anti-colonialist rage against Western dominance, and most especially against the wealth and power of the very nation Barack Obama now leads. It is this rage that explains the previously inexplicable hmm? and gives us a startling look at what might be ahead. <laughs> Obama would like to make America's superpower, uh, America's superpower status, a thing of the past. Well, there's a back cover too, but I no, no, that. no. That's I enough. I, I'm, I'm so completely confused and so completely, re- you know, almost ready to regurgitate. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza was born in what we used to call Bombay back in those <clears throat> colonialist yeah. times, in uh, and he is currently president of the King's College in New York City. I didn't look up that one. Uh, he, he was born and raised Roman Catholic, but now considers himself an evangelical Christian. There you have it, right there. Enough. The moral teachings of Jesus provide no support for, indeed they stand as a stern rebuke to, the historical injustices perpetuated in the name of Christianity. Well, he's sort of right there, I guess. Okay, so here's here's, here's the wonderful guy's books. Falwell, Before the Millennium, a critical biography. Oh my gosh, the Catholic classics, illiberal education, the end of racism. And I love this one, Ronald Reagan, How an Ordinary Man Became an Extraordinary Leader.
governments, your friends you see. That's what I have to say, or they will bury me. Don't you try to criticize, and don't you ever try to talk about their lies. I don't know what you've been told, but last time I checked, we had the right to say the things we mean and disagree and not have to face the guillotine. But if it's your head in the basket, then you just picked the wrong side of the revolution. Patriot Act is the riot act with a PAT. What the really means is that they're watching you and that they're really watching me. And anyone who disagrees is sure to lose their liberties. A patriot has got to keep his mouth shut. But if it's your head in the basket, then you just pick the wrong side of the revolution. King and his army wing, they are hell-bent on the conquest Our enemies on bended knees, they're gonna see it always soon Because the freedom that they steal from us, they try to export overseas And now our former enemies are free to live a life of tyranny the same as you or me And it's a crime to speak your mind And it's a crime, whoa If you heard that plate is gonna You're not because you stick them in a cell and they are soon forgotten And they're out of sight and out of mind and out of luck But if it's your head in the basket Then you just pick the wrong side of the revolution Before you choose a side to fight Forget about who's wrong or right If you like your neck you best as heck start rooting for the winner This brave new world is knocking at your door And you better let it in The Constitution's evolution never made a contribution To the revolutionary man It's a crime To speak your mind And it's a crime Oh, don't say the word Cause if you heard that What led Obama administration officials to wildly understate the size of the BP oil spill until it was all over? Was it just a series of honest mistakes, or was science being manipulated for political purposes? An environmental whistleblower group suspects the latter, and its distrust has only grown as the U.S. Geological Survey, 
One of the several agencies involved in assessing the flow rate has refused to turn over relevant documents, including directives from political appointees. So the group, Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, filed suit in federal district court this week, claiming that hundreds of pages of reports and communications are being withheld in violation of the Freedom of Information Act. Our concern is that the administration took and is still taking steps to falsely minimize public perception about the extent and severity of the BP spill, a concern that the administration could start to dispel by releasing these documents, said Peer Executive Director Jeff Roosh lately in a statement. For now, Peer is focusing on the first official report of the National Incident Command's Flow Rate Technical Group, which was comprised of federal and independent scientists. After five weeks, during which the administration stuck to a preposterous 5,000 barrels a day estimate, USGS Director Marsha McNutt, who chaired the group, issued a public statement May 27th declaring that the best estimate of the flow was between 12,000 and 19,000 barrels per day. But that statement was tremendously misleading. Scientists in the group had agreed on that range only as the lower range of lower bounds of the spill. Even when a summary of the report was released a few days later, it only generally described the assumptions made by scientists. The underlying technical work was not made public. And rather than state any upper boundary, the report borrowed from the lexicon of Bush-era Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld to assert that such a figure was incalculable due to known unknowns and unknown unknowns. Ugh. I thought we'd had enough of this. Is this the Obama administration's first real scandal? Because if so, it's a biggie. I'm here on the shore of the Gulf Coast for Radio Free Oz, talking with Charles Dunder, the latest member of Obama's Gang of Five sent down here to solve the oil spill crisis. Uh, You've just arrived, haven't you, Charles? Yes, I replaced Professor Katz, uh, you know, the astrophysicist, when it was revealed that he was a virulent homophobe, and a climate change denier. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. So, but so w- what do you add to the team, then? Well, I run the Petro Nutritional Institute back at Solid State University. I'm down here investigating a sustainable solution to the, well, the massive loss of fish and shellfish that's going on right here at our feet as we speak. Uh, Petro Nutrition, I'm not familiar with that field. Oh, well, it's relatively new. You know, it didn't take off until we got the whole petrophilic nano-cloning process down. Excuse me? Well, sorry, uh, Mr. Oz. Simply put, given the right starter genes, chain-ganged polymers, and robust steroids, we can create a host of creatures that not only survive in oil-saturated water, but... Well, they really thrive on it. Oh, mm-hmm. Is uh, is that one of them? That thing you're holding in your hand looks looks vaguely like a shrimp. Yes, yes, exactly. We call it the slick shrimp, and and yes, it does thrive in oil polluted wetlands just like these. Uh, now, you throw a million slick shrimp scat, as <laughs> the little fellows are called when they come out of the test tube, no bigger than a puppy seed, <laughs> and a month later, well, they're as big as as Buster hair. <laughs> Ready to be flavored and sent off to market. You want to try one? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's a little chewy. Oh, that's the that's the polymer filling. How does it taste? Uh, tastes like pork. Yeah, yeah. Pork flavored slick shrimp. 
one of my one of my favorites. It's uh, it's Pan Asian. You know. let, let, let me have it back. Oh, 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 yeah, okay. Oh, now you see. Watch this. I I just dip it in the degreaser and watch as it springs back to life. It, it could rub a little of this on it. And, all right, here you are again. Now give it a try. Hmm. Mm. Now, that tastes like Jumbo Bayou Scampi, the real thing. Oh, well, they're all the real thing. <laughs> well, <clears throat> and that should go over real good with the green crowd. I mean, you can re-eat them up to a dozen times, we believe, before the steroid skeleton breaks down. And, <laughs> well, they just turn to mush. It's a reasonable short-term solution, Charles, but I, I can't wait for the real shrimp to return. Oh, 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 return? Well, Uncle Pete, that hole in the ocean floor is... Spewing some 200,000 gallons of oil a day, your great-grandchildren will be waiting for these little shrimp to return. Now, so, now let's get real. I've got this oil-happy catfish here. You only have to put a match to it, like this. Ooh! <laughs> See? He's sautéed and ready to serve. <laughs> this is Peter Bergman for Radio Free Oz in the Gulf, and... I want to go home. You <laughs> can never go home. Ideological purity. Oh, I love it. Oh, doesn't that make the chills run up and down your spine? And, In the and wrong just, direction. Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid so. Well, ideological purity is... Uh, there's, a, there's a big issue out there of ideological purity. I'll get to Jim DeMint sometime along the line, but let's start with this poor guy from Saudi Arabia where, um, you know, okay... Gay diplomat, okay? An openly gay Saudi Arabian diplomat. You're in real trouble right there. Yes. In Los Angeles, who requested asylum in late August, said he had received death threats since making it public on Saturday a week or so ago that he had asked to be allowed to stay in the United States. The diplomat, Ali Ahmad Aseri, was still awaiting word from American officials on his application and said he feared execution if he returned to his country. My life is in great danger here, he wrote in this letter, and if I go back to Saudi Arabia, they will kill me openly in broad daylight. I want my voice to be heard, and I want them to know that I am not alone. This poor guy in Los Angeles, he's not alone. I mean, he just goes to West L.A., and he's in good company. He can company. just stand anywhere, and he won't be alone. <laughs> On the phone uh, Tuesday, uh, Mr. Aseri said he had received several threats on his life this week since posting comments on a popular Arabic website that criticized, quote, militant imams. We got him here too, pal. And threatened to expose embarrassing information about Saudi uh, uh, royalty living in the United States. Oh, boy, don't, don't get it. Don't do that. Don't even go there. No, that's that the problem. One. That makes fatwas look like mosquito bites. So his, he's, he's waiting. He's waiting. The last Saudi diplomat granted asylum in the United States back in 1994 was the first secretary to the Saudi mission and he criticized uh, Saudi Arabia's human rights record and got out of the country immediately after that. So this pork, this, I mean, there we are, Saudi Arabia, let's buy more oil. I, I was going to say, not only buy more oil, but th this is a country where you have to run away from if you, if you criticize their human rights or say you're gay, and we're just about to send them, what, $60 billion worth of arms? Or is that 90? I'll have to check with Rush Limbaugh. This is really not a good idea, friends. I mean, come on. 
I'm Skyping with Kelly Brewer, the CEO of Cosmic Shift uh, Communications, uh, who has kind of come on board as part of the greater Oz team, helping us uh, expand the reach of the site. And she's particularly qualified in doing it because, well, she comes from the real world into the new world. Uh, welcome to Radio Free Oz, Kelly. Thank you, Peter. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's, I'm glad glad to have you here. Uh, we first met when I did my one-man show in Mount Shasta and uh, called Seeing 2020. That was a year ago, wasn't it? Yeah, it's been a long time. It was a year ago. I think it was September 1st. Yeah, there you go. So, you know, a, a year later, here we are. I'd like you to tell us your story and how it informs us about how standard uh, journalism and, and everything around it can learn from the, you know, the new media and social networking and sharing and all the things that are happening, which I have like, they're new to me too, and I'm really excited about it. Would you, would, would you be so good? Okay. Surely. Well, my journey starts uh, about 25 years ago in newspapers, print journalism, very traditional background, very traditional education. Yeah. Uh, then I, uh, I grew up in newspapers. I uh, moved up in newspapers. I became an editor of newspapers. And what I found was that I was an early adopter of technology as it was coming along. But I found myself to be somewhat alone in this new world uh -huh. because newspaper people are traditionalists. They're purists, you know, yeah. and it takes a little while for them to buy into every passing fad. Uh, but this turned out not to be a passing fad. Yep. The internet turned out to be one of the best things for journalism. So about uh, three years ago, I decided that print journalism, mm, print journalism needed me less than social journalism needed me. Online journalism needed me, okay. and I needed online journalism. Okay. Because it's very nimble. It's very quick. And I thought I wanted to go faster than I was going where I was. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got where I am. The last three years, I've been doing online journalism and social media networking and management and a whole wide variety of things that have sort of pulled it all together for me. And I'm just having a ball. Well, what, what can, you know, I, I come from a family. My dad was a journalist. I used to go down into the press room at the Cleveland Plain Dealer and all the guys at the line of type machines were wearing paper hats. And it was really, ben, right. it was Ben Hecht Redux with the, 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 you know, the city room had those oak, you know, uh, oak, oak little gates that swung open with the brass knobs and, you know, people were smoking uh -huh. pipes and, and it, you know, it was, it was old, old school, but that still reigns in, in the thinking of a lot of people in journalism. What can they do? What can they learn? How can they make the crossover and stay journalists? Well, you don't need paper to be a journalist. <laughs> so my feeling is newspapers may go away, but journalism will never go away. Good journalism is needed more now more than ever and we can just take it online we don't have to have portfolios we don't have to have press passes we take it online we learn from the online community which is different than a traditional publishing community mm -hmm. and we combine them for the best of both worlds and have you found that there there's success in this you say you've been at it for three years now what what's what is the the arc of your your work look like I started uh, helping out. Uh, I formed. I didn't form. I was in a partnership with uh, with some people who formed a local news website mm -hmm. up here where we live yep. in Northern California, and we very quickly were able to establish a trajectory of growth that astonished even us. And we were 
uh, welcomed by our community, even without paper. We were good journalists online. Mm -hmm. After that, I sold my shares to the other partners, and now I'm in, as you know, Cosmic Shift Communications, uh, social media management for busy people. All right, let me ask you something. Social media management for busy people, what really does that entail? That entails online marketing through social networking Mm -hmm. to heighten your own visibility and your own profile Mm -hmm. and to make real connections with real people that you can see and talk with and develop trustworthy relationships. So you can can focus your publishing. You can find your audience, right, through social networking, which you couldn't do in a regular newspaper. The audience you had basically was local. Cleveland Plain Dealer goes to Cleveland, right? It doesn't know specifically how to get to people that it wants to reach. It might say, hey, there are a lot of people out there that like sports, so let's have a robust sports page. But aside that, they are not sure how to find the special interests, right? That's right. And niche marketing is where it's all at online. But you can combine both. Uh, and many newspapers now are doing that. They came to it slowly, but, but they came to it. And they're doing it. And they're finding ways to make it work. So um, a lot of newspapers have both their paper edition and their online edition. And the Salzburger of the New York Times announced just recently that the time will not be long from now when they're going to end the paper edition of the New York Times. They, the economic model doesn't work anymore. That's right. And everybody will have to do that as well. Presses are expensive. You know, paper is expensive and it can be done in other ways. And the generations who are reading everything uh, in the palm of their hand now, and I'm talking digital content, uh, they're the ones who are buying the content now. So they'll understand it. Well, this is fascinating, and we're going to we're going to be with you again soon, Kelly, because you're helping Radio Friaz reach out to some of the traditional, uh, uh, you know, uh, journalist media, and and make that step over, and you know, we'll keep the audience uh, up to date on how that's working because it's relevant to something they're doing, or something their children are doing, or their friends are doing, or whatever. So, thank you very much for being on Radio Friaz. You're welcome. Out of Politico. Democrats were able to deliver President Barack Obama significant legislative victory this week when the Senate voted to approve a long-stalled $30 billion small business tax package in what is probably the last real economic stimulus measure before the midterm elections. With the help of Republicans George Voinovich of Ohio, my Buckeye state, and George Lemieux of Florida, Majority Leader Harry Reid was able to push through the legislation 61 to 38, which included a new Treasury-backed loan facility for small business owners, and major tax breaks for businesses over the next two years. Hey, they needed those two Republicans to beat another GOP filibuster. Why compromise, GOP? Why solve problems when you just stall things and wait for an angry, frustrated, ill-informed electorate to vote you in because everything is stalled? Obama has hammered Republicans through the summer break for blocking the bill. And when Voinovich and Lemieux indicated this week that they would vote for it, that was enough to clear the 60-vote barrier needed for passage. This filibuster thing really sucks. It's supposed to be used as an exceptional device, not as a way to block the majority from having anything done. Why aren't people more upset about this? Because they're not listening. Because they're watching America's Got Talent. Well... America ain't got no politics. That's the problem. 
I couldn't find a reason to be against it. I could only find reasons to be for it, said Lemieux. I tried to make the case for it to other Republicans. All I can do is make the best case for it that I can, but when I look through the principles that are important to me, does it increase the deficit, which is cascading out of control? No. It doesn't raise taxes. In fact, cuts taxes for small businesses and provides these loans, which will be paid back. The federal government will actually make money on it. Hey, sounds good to me. Before the final vote on the underlying bill, the Senate defeated an amendment passed by Orrin Hatch that would have added a research and development tax credit to the legislation. Sounds like a good idea. That R&D credit uh, has bipartisan support, but the Democrats rejected the measure as a tactic to delay passage of the overall legislation because the Hatch provision would have required the Finance Committee to go back and rewrite the legislation to include the extension. What a sneaky bastard! Republicans have also tried to use the small business bill to strip out a controversial business accounting provision in last year's health care bill, but that amendment failed also, i.e., they're not building us up. They're not going, oh, Mr. Chairman, I've got a great idea for adding to this tax thing. See, if we do this, it'll help the little guy and Main Street will blossom. No, I'm a sneaky bastard and I'm going to try and bring this down and look kind of good at the same time. The bill now goes to the House, which has already approved a similar measure and is expected to pass the jobs package without alteration. Though some House Democrats express concern over some of the differences between the two versions of the bill, Speaker Nancy Pelosi would be hard-pressed to make changes and force the Senate to vote on it again. So here you are. The Democrats actually sense the emergency that's going on. What's up with the Republicans? Are they totally out of touch or so thoroughly corrupt that they just don't care? Unfortunately, I have to choose the latter. Well, Dave, we're just about the end of today's show, and uh, I think it's... It's weird uh, and crazy out there, isn't it? It's a weird and crazy time, having a wonderful time, yeah. and, and I think we ought to give ourselves some sort of dimensional perspective by going back. We've been, we've been so forward today. Let's go back. Let's go back to China. Let's go back to Tang, and let's get poetic. And how about some elegant women? Oh, hey. Ooh, this is a sexy poem from... Best part of my life. ...from Tu Fu. Okay. On the third day of the third month, in fresh weather, the elegant women of the capital stroll on the riverbank, their manner regal and remote, their faces delicate, their figures shapely and pleasing. Wrapped in filmy silks bright with peacocks and silvery unicorns, they illumine the spring evening. What do they wear in their hair? The hummingbird headdress, with jade leaves dangling past their lips. What do you see upon their shoulders? Capes with crushed pearls at their waists that cling to their bodies. One even glimpses from time to time, glittering beneath the canopies of the Empress's pavilion, those great ladies of the Empire, Kuo and Chin. Purple steak from the camel's hump, broiled in a glistening pan, and the white flesh of fish are set out in rows of crystal dishes. But the satiated ones stay their rhinoceros chopsticks, and morsels minced by belled knives lie untouched. Yet still the palace eunuchs arrive. They rein in their horses without so much as stirring dust, and set before the guests food rare as jewels, brought from the eight corners of the earth. The music of pipes and drums, strange enough to move the dead, accompanies the feast. A vast retinue blocks the main road. Then in measured paces a saddled horse arrives. 
The rider dismounts and enters on embroidered carpets. Willow down drifts like snow, making white duckweed flowers. And a bluebird flies off with a scarlet kerchief in his beak. Be careful, so great is his power, his lightest touch can burn. Do not approach the prime minister too close. He may be angry. Hey, elegant women, Hollywood, <laughs> eat your heart out. Radio Free Oz, I'm your host, Peter Bergman, co-host David Osmond. Yep. We're, we're going to be with you again tomorrow because there will be a tomorrow.